Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1116, with guests Brian Lagunas and Brian Noyes. Recorded Friday, March 13th, 2015. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're here again with an hour. we got two Brian's, Brian Lagunas and Brian Noyes coming up. But uh, before we get to them, how the heck are you, sir? I'm, you know, plunking along one way or the other. I'm planning a lot of conferences these days. It's kind of nutty. Well, you've always sort of done that. It's- yeah, but it's uh, they're, now they're mine, so it's more intense. You know, we've got uh, Scottsdale coming up, Dev Intersection yep. in May. Yep. And that's that one's pretty much ready to go now. We're just filling the seats and and getting it all set up. But in the springtime now, we've got th- or the fall, we have three shows. So in September, we're in Monterey, California, and we're doing a show focused on architecture and uh, IoT. Little and that's smaller boutique. That, that's a dev intersection show. It is a kind of dev intersection show, but it's not our usual content. We're sort of experimenting there. Okay, it's, it's a smaller venue. Uh, in October. We're going to do our first dev intersection in Europe. Looks like it's going to be in Amsterdam. We haven't quite locked the venue yet, no but we're figuring that out. Yeah. Wow. Going to be going to go, go to Amsterdam. And then, of course, the big show is in November, the 2nd to the, to the 6th, at the MGM Grand in Vegas, dev intersection and angle brackets. Wow. I better order some tickets. Yeah. Well, you and I are going to be <laughs> busy, busy, busy everywhere we go, right? That's right. We've got NDC coming up, as you hear. We've got uh, probably going to NDC London as well. Probably. And we're going to be at Build here And all the dev soon. intersections. And all the dev intersections. Oh, my gosh. Well, in light of all of that, let me roll the music for Better Know Framework because i got a really cool tip here for you. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? So this isn't my tip, but I found this at uh, visualstudiomagazine.com. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Peter Vogel's uh, column, .NET Tips and Tricks, and it's a tip for omitting and including debug code. Oh. And I'll boil it down for you. So, you know, you have debug code flags that you want to set, things that you want to call, you know, when you're console writing and uh, debug printing and logging and tracing and all of that stuff that you want to turn on and turn off. And instead of setting a Boolean somewhere and then checking it everywhere that you want to do, right, you know, it's... It's kind of messy. Yep. So what he does is he uses a conditional attribute, conditional debug, and puts that on uh, methods that get called when you're in debug mode. And the magic of it is it's automatically included by Visual Studio when you're compiling in debug mode and automate excluded when you compile in release mode. Nice. So it's pretty cool because he just puts this attribute above these methods and depending on how he compiles, they run or don't run. Pretty cool. I love it. A great idea. And yeah. I, I've known Peter Vogel, wow, way back in the advisor days. You know, he's yeah. still still out there doing the thing. That's awesome. Doing great stuff. So it's a great uh, – <laughs> he says, the conditional attribute is what saves my Canadian bacon here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's at tinyurl.com slash tip. Nice. All one word, of course. And uh, know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 971, the one we did with Worcester, Brian Noyes, where we talked about Prism in WPF and Windows 8 and so forth. And we have a comment from Stephen Barnett, which somebody, and I suspect it was you, marked as the featured comment. Hmm. And it's a, it's a bit of a wobber, but uh, it's well worth reading here. So he says, hi, guys, good show. Winforms is my life. And where have you two been? Day in, day out, I develop using C-sharp and WinForms and VB6 and WinForms, and it just works. VB6 and WinForms? There you go. Yeah. As well as C-sharp. So he's switch hitting. You mean VBNet, right? No, he means VB6. VB6 WinForms. WinForms is a .NET technology. Well, no, WinForms is in, v- in VB6 as well. Oh, okay. You know, they're, they're not the same, but they essentially the same. WinForms is usually short for Windows Forms, which is a namespace in .NET. I'm being picky here. Yeah. Okay. It's fast, 
it's stable. It doesn't depend on whether some third parties had a bad day and chose not to implement a particular feature in their browser or some guy digging a hole in the wrong space. It takes out your communications. <laughs> it's on, it's there. It's on your desktop or your laptop and it works. True that. For my development environment, it's XP. Still. Yes, it used to run on a creaky old desktop machine, but that changed when I decided the machine was getting too old and using a small free tool. The real hard disk was converted to a VHD. He went virtual and 10 minutes in virtual box. And lo and behold, my dev environment is now running on an i5 desktop in an SSD with lots of memory and lots of horsepower. And it's stinky fast. I'm just thinking about how fast VB6 would run on a modern machine with an SSD. You that know, we used to complain awesome. about the speed back then, and, yeah. and somehow the speed sticks in our mind as a problem of yep. a language, but it's really the, the horsepower of the machines of the day that we remember. Sure. Yeah. There was no digging around for install media, no re-registering with web services, and basically no hassle. The application is over 20 years old, and wow. it just works, and it runs on XP, Vista, Windows 7, and Win 8. Yeah. The only issue to date has been Microsoft Security. And best of all, the users can run IE6, Chrome, Firefox, Opera, and it makes no difference. It's VB6. It's desktop. It just works. Just works. Uh, XP is out of support, but that's not a problem. My deployment machine took me two hours to convert to Windows 7, plus the 217 patches I had to apply <laughs> after the clean install. <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> My dev machine is currently being converted over. It's a little more complex, but it's already building VB6 applications. All of the components are installed. And guess what? It wasn't a problem because none of them required internet activation. Hmm. The vendors have, are gone, but who cares? I don't need inter internet activation. Yeah. I think the desktop WinForms is much undervalued now that everything has to run in the web services environment. And okay, deployment may be more of a pain, but a decent installer can handle that for you. And to be fair, I am rewriting the VB6 application, not because it doesn't do what our users want, not because it's broken, but because it doesn't look pretty. It's not Metro style, so it can't be any good. I don't know that there's that many Metro style apps out there to this day. I am, however, developing it as a C-sharp WinForms app. So it's still going to be WinForms. I love my desktop development environment. I've worked in ASP, and I was way less productive. Sadly, though, WinForms is being shuffled off to the side and ignored by Microsoft. I can't even get certification for WinForms anymore. So it'll slowly get relegated to the background. Many developers will move over to ASP.NET, and many of us will just quietly sit there and make a fortune maintaining these legacy applications. I can't argue with the fact that WinForms is being ignored by Microsoft. And I would argue not so much ignored as, okay, it's done. We're not going to add any more to this. They have gone to the trouble of continuing to maintain it. And last time I looked, it's still in Win 10. So right. they're not dropping support for it. Is there still certification for it? Probably not, just because why would there be? There's just nothing much to do then in that space anymore. Um. Are you going to stick with it as a legacy app? Sure, you can. You are running a risk. Sooner or later, they're going to replace that app. And are your skills going to be in a place to work on something new? They still, I still have talked to some guys who are making money on Fox Pro apps because the pool is so small now that folks that depend on that app will pay quite a bit for someone who can maintain it. So there's a game to be played there of being the rare asset. It's just eventually it's going to end. Are you going to move out of the industry once that finally ends? Or are you going to jump back up? I don't know. It's it's a good question. I don't have any problem with, with Steve continuing to maintain the WinForms app. Good on you, man. It's, it's a living. It's just a question of what did you want to be doing. Right. Uh, and irrespective of that... A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps, because we've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And that brings us to the Bryans. Brian Lagunas is a Microsoft MVP, a Microsoft Patterns and Practices champion, co-leader of the Boise.NET Developer Users Group, a board member of the Boise Code Camp, speaker, trainer, plural site author, and original creator of the Extended WPF Toolkit. <gasps> He's he's a, a big long one. He is a multi recipient of the Microsoft Community Contributor Award and can be found speaking at a variety of user groups, code camps, and other technical events around the world. His talks always involve some form of XAML, such as WPF, Silverlight, and Windows Store, as well as how to build modular applications with Prism. Bryant Lee currently works at Infragistics as a product manager for all things XAML. 
Brian Noyes is CTO and co-founder of Salliance, a Microsoft Regional Director, Microsoft MVP, and Pluralsight author. Brian specializes in designing and building rich client applications with XAML and HTML and the services that back them with Azure, ASP.NET, and WCF. Brian Noyes has been involved with Prism since the day the project was launched in January 2008 and as a team member and contributor to the requirements, design, and implementation, both as a consultant for Microsoft and advisor to the team. Brian Lagunas, Brian Noyes, welcome to .NET Rocks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, definitely. Number 12, I think, for me. Yeah, that's right, Brian Noyes. You were, you've been on many, many times. This is only number two for me, so he totally won up to me. That's right. But it's good <laughs> good to have you both on. Now, um, we've talked about Prism in the past, and it, it seems like these days there are, well, there aren't a lot of things like Prism. Prism is sort of bigger in scope than simply, uh, you know, uh, implementing patterns and things. But anytime that uh, somebody talks about MVVM, especially with the XAML technologies, Prism may come up in conversation, but it's usually just that little piece of it, the MVVM stuff. Uh, but there's so much more to it than that, isn't there? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it gets compared a lot, like you said, to MVVM frameworks. And the interesting thing is that, you know, the especially the first releases, the first few releases of Prism, it was not an MVVM framework in any way, shape, or form. It was more of an extensibility framework and a, a framework for building loosely coupled maintainable applications that just happened to use some MVVM in its samples. Yeah. Um, but, but the sort of reusable code of Prism didn't really include anything uh, much, you know, anything significant in terms of MVVM. Yeah. Now, the most recent release of the WPF and the Windows runtime sides does definitely have some good MVVM support now. Um, but it, like you said, it goes well beyond just MVVM. It's more about the overall architecture and the way you tie together all the pieces of your application in a loosely coupled way. So here's a question. If, if I was building a WPF-only app, in other words, I have a particular market. It's Windows Desktop. They're not going web. They're not going mobile, anything like that. Um, I'm probably more apt to look into Prism because it's going to help me do my thing. But make the pitch to people who are developing Windows Universal apps as well as mobile apps and probably doing a lot of stuff with, uh, you know, uh, portable class libraries for their logic and also utilizing that on the web, you know, going full spectrum across everything, including WPF. Is there going to be just as much um, learning curve for Prism uh, as there is for WPF in general, which is pretty uh, extensible, or is there some way that Prism can simplify WPF programming, even if we're using portable class libraries for most of our stuff to go on all these other platforms? Well, as it sits right now, uh, Prism is is mainly a WPF guidance, right? It, it provides a set of guidance for building composite module applications for WPF, but then it's a, it has a separate set of guidance, which is different for uh, the Windows Store side of things. Uh, so in, in the aspect of, you know, sharing the guidance, it's kind of difficult to do at this point, which kind of leads to the direction it's going to go. You mentioned PCLs. Uh, while we did pull a lot of things out of the WPF side of things into PCLs so that we can reuse those into the WinRT side, such as the view model locator and commanding and things like that, uh, pub sub events, uh, we want to take it a step further. And we started working on a, a, a new repro in which uh, Prism 6, where the core of it is actually in a PCL. And then we start to provide you know platform-specific implementations for its guidance uh, because obviously developing a WPF application is going to be completely different than developing, say, a WinRT, Windows Store, Windows Phone application. So we're actually got a lot of code churn going on right now, restructuring, pulling things out into PCLs, trying to identify what makes sense for what platform. Does it make sense to have you know, modularity on phone? Does that make sense? I don't know. Uh, we're also looking at support for Xamarin Forms as well. Uh, uh, if you look at the repo right now, we have a lot of, uh, you know, code churn going on, investigating, playing around, you know, what makes sense? Where can we help people solve problems? So uh, we're awesome. definitely moving in that in that approach that you mentioned with PCLs and trying to hit all the platforms. So I'm really excited for Build uh, to see what's announced at Build. I'll be there. Uh, I believe Brian Noyes will be there as well. 
Uh, and then yep. w- we might start writing code right there once announcements are made. Well, that's great. I wanted to get that out of the way because that might turn people off from listening to the rest of the show. You know, well, if this is WPF only thing, uh, you know, I'm not so interested. So great. That's wonderful. I did not know that. Tell- yeah. So the, uh, the, the Windows runtime side, you know, there was a separate release for that. And, and, and part of what guided that release, like Brian uh, mentions, is that, you know, the, the, Design guidance around Windows Store apps and just the platform as a whole is a, is really a very different thing. Even though it's XAML based, it's you know less powerful in a lot of ways than than the WPF stack. And the way the apps are packaged and delivered means that you can't have some of the runtime extensibility and stuff that was the original focus of Prism for WPF. Um, so when we got started with the Prism for Windows runtime guidance, we were trying to you know leverage some of the same goals of loosely coupled, maintainable, testable, and so on, and bring across whatever patterns from Prism for WPF made sense, but a lot of them didn't at the time. And so, you know, at the current time, we're we're just kind of holding our breath a little bit for build to see exactly what the unveiled developer experience and platform looks like in terms of Windows 10 to figure out what the right way to move that forward into Windows 10 is. And whether that becomes just, like Brian mentions, a another platform with its own code base that's supported by Prism, uh, in addition to the new stuff that Brian's adding in terms of Xamarin, uh, or maybe it merges back in and we have a little bit more sharing again between WPF and uh, Windows 10 version of the runtime. Well, this, I mean, it opens a tons of doors here, but it's, we're still talking about a pretty significant chunk of structure. What is the normal customer for Prism? Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and take that, Brian. Noise. Uh, it's actually a vast variety. Uh, in particular, with WPF apps, you know, the thing about WPF is it doesn't get a lot of a public exposure because most of w- WPF apps are written for companies, internal apps that people will never see or hear about. So there's this community, uh, you know, outlook on WPF. Oh, it doesn't have a lot of adoption. When in in fact, that's not the case at all. Enterprises. Uh, rely on WPF. Uh, WPF is, basically runs Wall Street. If you ever walk into one of the you know top 100 companies at on Wall Street and you walk in their offices, you'll see all the apps, all those financial uh, apps that are running on their 12 monitors that someone has. That, that's all WPF. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then you have the the smaller shops who you know want to churn out code quickly, uh, but keep things testable and maintainable and extensible. Uh, they'll, they'll also use you know prism for the wpf apps uh the last company i worked for uh, was a steel manufacturing plant in nampa idaho we had all of four developers but we had you know three locations uh and we supported uh an entire system from the engineering line for the entire process of manufacturing steel you know we had wpf apps that would manage and maintain and run the actual machines themselves uh that are on the production line uh, so there, there's a lot of use and applications for using WPF in general, and Prism helps to make WPF development uh, a little easier because there's a lot of challenges that you run into writing just a normal WPF app, and I find that Prism helps provide that guidance and it helps create this this nice blueprint that you can just uh, follow and be successful. So is your argument then, Brian Lagunas, if you're building a WPF, you should be using Prism? Well, you know, there's there's always two camps to that. My camp is yes. Uh, I've never written a WPF app that doesn't use Prism, only because I'm so used to it that it, it's become my pattern, and I've never not been successful with it. Yeah, I think my perspective is you should be using Prism or something like it. If you know, if it's an app that you're going to put a substantial investment in. You just really, you know, like any other software development, you shouldn't just throw it together. You need to have a, you know, kind of a framework type approach to it. You need to have good separation of concerns. You need to, you know, have some modularity so you can separate out the work and divide it across teams. And and that's exactly the path that Prism, you know, sets you up for. Much like, you know, you guys have had plenty of shows now on Angular and all the buzz around Angular. Angular is popular, or one of the reasons Angular is popular is because it sets you up up front with some structure that, you know, kind of 
makes you put the right things in the right drawers uh, so that things are well-separated and well-structured. And that's exactly what Prism does for XAML applications. And there are other frameworks out there. Calibre, you know, Calibre Micro is another great one that goes well beyond just being an MVVM framework and helps you with some of that structuring as well. Um, and, and there's others as well. But, you know, you should be using Prism or something like it is the way I would caveat it. But just like Brian Lagunas, I, you know, I have been so involved with Prism since the start. It's just my go-to thing. And and a lot of people have also liked it because of the Microsoft background and, and origination of it. It's hard to resist patterns and practices. So tell us a little bit about the process of composition with Prism. I know we've talked about it before, but just in case anybody is saying to themselves, you know, I don't need that. I've got my code that I reuse all the time, or maybe I've spent a lot of time styling and I've got my you know, got my ritual down. How is this going to save me time or, or make it easier for me to, to, to build apps in XAML? Sure. Um, it, you know, it's interesting because this is one of those things where I have had customers that when you first sit down and start working with them on something that, you know, their, their first impression is, Oh my God, this is going to like take so much longer because you know, with any kind of framework based approach, there's a certain amount of ceremony up front that you have to take to kind of lay down the structure appropriately. Um, and so the very first impression you get is you have to do extra work, but what it's really doing is setting up this structure so that it's kind of like building a chest of drawers. You know, first you build the chest of drawers, and then from then on, you know where to put your socks, you know where to put your shirts, and so on. Yeah. And so you need to do that upfront work so that you can be organized and, and efficient about your ongoing work. Um so I think what it really does is it lays down that structure to say, these are the places that certain kinds of code go. Uh, we have well-defined abstractions for the kinds of things you need to do in your app. And it just, you know, sets up that overall organization. So it does accelerate in the long term. It definitely accelerates your development. You get into this rhythm where you just say, okay, what's the, you know, what's the feature or the, the piece of functionality that I'm working on at this moment? What are the kinds of things that I need for that? Well, I know I need one of these, one of these, one of these, because those are the kinds of constructs that I put into a Prism app, and I know right where to put them because there's a standard structure to the way to go about that. This is nothing unusual for any library. There is ceremony right. around libraries. That's life. Sure. Exactly. Sure. And as a user of Prism, you find that you're more productive using this uh, library than you would be? Are you using this sort of composition technique than you would be if you were just building things yourself? Absolutely, because you avoid, you know, you avoid that design thrash that if, if you don't have something like this structuring the way you go about things, then every new thing you sit down to do, you're kind of like trying to come up with a, a design pattern around it from scratch. And so it, you know, just kind of gets you, gets you moving in the right direction much quicker. If you're not already building stuff with WPF and you're still looking at WPF as just a giant void of information that you have to, uh, you know, memorize and learn and not looking forward to that, is Prism going to help you with that process? Or is that yet more stuff that you have to learn on top of it? I guess what I'm saying, I'm, I'm not saying making excuses for not learning anything, but can you be more productive with Prism right out of the box than, sh than having to learn how to do things manually, for lack of a well, better word? Well, what's going to happen is you're going to have to know WPF. I mean, that's just, you have to know it. Uh, because not only does Prism rely on you knowing WPF and how it works, but Prism also utilizes a number of patterns and practices that you know, honestly, maybe the the normal developer, the nine to five developer, doesn't doesn't concern themselves with a version right. of control, right? Using containers, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, view separation patterns such as MVVM. Although you're not required to use MVVM, you can use whatever pattern you want, MVC or code behind. Prism doesn't care. You know, you have event aggregation, commanding, composite commands. I mean, there's a slew of other patterns that you have to to know or learn in order to use Prism. That's all part of that. Uh, you know, you're you're creating this blueprint that's going to set you up for success going forward. So, you, there is a, definitely a learning curve, and you know, when you when you first hit the web looking for solutions, there's a lot of bad and poorly guided implementations out there. Uh, what I mean by that is they're overcomplicated. Uh, the biggest thing I see with people getting started with Prism 
is a completely overcomplicated to begin with. It's really not that difficult. Uh, but there is a learning curve. But once you get it, you're you're set. Yeah, it's like anything else. There's a fear of of falling into a rabbit hole, right? You know, and how much how much am I? What am, what can of worms am I opening by going? To, you know, when it usually turns out that oh, that wasn't so hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, you know, Prism's got a lot of things in it, but you know, you don't have to use everything all at once, uh, and a lot of it depends on the scale of the application too. You know, I've worked like like Brian Lagunas mentioned. You know, I've worked with com- customers all the way from you know big financial companies with uh, hundreds of developers to you know little startups with one developer, um, and they all found value in Prism. But a lot of it has to do with you know applying the right parts based on the scale of the application. If it's going to be a big multi-module, you know, enterprise application with dozens of chunks of functionality, I had one uh, recent customer that was going to build 150 different modules that were going to plug into this one application. You know, then you need to use kind of the whole kitchen sink, and there's a, a much higher bar of what you need to know going into that. Mm-hmm. But it, but if you're just using Prism as a way to, you know, write a smaller scale application, and you want some structure and some cleanliness to the thing that you end up with then it can guide you down that path as well. But, there, you know, there's no there's no sugarcoating it. You Like Brian Laguna said, you've got to know WPF. You've got to know XAML, data binding, right. um, and other things like dependency injection as a, as a prerequisite to Prism. Yep, yep, yep. So should your first WPF app ever really involve Prism, or do I need to go, you know, mess around for a while first? I would always I think- suggest learning the the core first, you know, I would write a simple WPF app with no frameworks whatsoever, no patterns whatsoever. Understand the technology first, then start applying your separation patterns, then start applying other concepts and build on the knowledge mm. you already have. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on a ton of things. You're not going to understand why or how things work. Uh, you're going to set yourself up for more of those rabbit holes we were just talking about. Data binding, I think, is probably the the biggest boogeyman in WPF just because – the documentation doesn't help you with specific implementations. It helps you understand how it works, but oftentimes putting that to practical use is very confusing. So I found, you know, Google Bing to be very, very helpful when I have a particular implementation that I want to do. And I, I usually go out and find in five minutes or less an answer. Yeah, someone ought to write a Pluralsight course on that. Oh, wait. Hey. <laughs> Did you do that, Brian? <laughs> Insert shameless plug. Yeah, I've got a, a WPF data binding in-depth course that uh, attempts to address the, the boogeyman you just identified. Wow, that's awesome. And hold, hold that thought right there, because Richard, you know what yep. time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to stop being a schlub. I'm going to go get me some grub. I'll order a sub, pick it up at the pub, then I'll sit down and eat my pub sub. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's a long <laughs> way for a publication joke. <laughs> and I wrote that while you guys were talking. That's the cool thing. Ah, oh, nice. So what did we talk about anyway? I'm not I'm filling <laughs> in. I always wonder just how tuned out you are when you're coming up with those. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I plan those times very, very uh, strategically. But uh, actually, if you, if you listen close, as you know, if you're a listener to the show, I usually am talking for the five minutes before the break. Right. And it's because he's writing. <laughs> yeah, and None if, he, if you listen accident. even closer, you can actually hear him <laughs> typing as we talk. <laughs> well, sometimes I mute my microphone, but uh, it depends, yeah. I suppose. In, in the edit, you'll never hear it, right? The published product, but there's, yeah, there's lots of, let's see, if you think everything is just casual at a DNR, you're mistaken. <laughs> it's, there's a plan here. It's the best job ever. All right. The it's best actually, job ever. It's actually time to give away a music to code by CD, download, and video collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about this project of mine, music to code by. It's three 25-minute quiet and groovy instrumentals designed to get you into a state of flow and stay there. And the results speak for themselves. Just look at the Twitter storm of people who are, who've never been more productive than when they listen to this stuff. Uh, see what all the fuss is about. Go to mtcb.com. That's mtcb.com. And check it out. 
Awesome, dude. So who's our winner? Today's winner is Andy Benson. Congratulations, Andy. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, Andy Benson just won. Uh, he won it on CD. He can download it and uh, a Blu-ray video documentary of the making of. You know, I had to have something to give away for 100 bucks. Sure. On the Kickstarter <laughs> campaign. And I thought, you know, every once in a while, somebody asked me, yeah, I'd really love to just watch you as you're making music. So there you go. That's what I, that's what I did. I have not seen the making of, and last time I looked, I was a $100 contributor to your You're, Yeah, that's right. It's <laughs> actually three hours long right now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so... They, and the edit's always the hardest part, isn't it? Yeah, the, the the final edit is happening now, and then it's going to production, so... Awesome. Three hours long, yeah. Whew. Okay. If, if, if not for a lack of content. No, I had to... It was longer. I had to pare it down. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, and, it, and folks need to remember, like... Uh, that Kickstarter ended in what August of 2014? Uh, September, I think. Yeah, yeah, you spent months on this. Yep, sure did. It, it's a lot of work. Well, uh, Andy Benson just won all that stuff. And if you don't know what we're talking about right now, go to dotnetrocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the Dotnet Rocks fan club because we have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 shopping spree to one lucky member of the Dotnet Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And also, we like to ask our guests, Brian and Brian. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, Brian Lagunas, let's start with you. What would you buy? Well, since I'm uh, doing a lot of work with Xamarin Forms right now, I need myself a MacBook or some type. Uh, ah. But I think I need an extra 2000 because I hear those things are pretty spendy. Uh, you can easily blow five grand on a MacBook. Yeah. Not hard at all. <laughs> Not a problem. What about you, Brian Noyce? Yeah, I'm sitting here in my uh, home office and looking at my aging Dell uh, desktop computer and thinking, I've got my MacBook Pro. I love that. I now have a shiny new uh, Surface Pro 3 that I'm using as my primary kind of on-the-road machine. But uh, my my desktop's getting a little old. It's over two years old, you know, and that's like archaic. So I'm thinking of either uh, one of the little uh, Space Trash Can Mac Pros um, or, you know, just a big, beefy home-built kind of uh, developer rig. You want a big, big honking machine, huh? Something that can... Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't built a desktop machine in a while, and I used to build one like every couple of years just because the parts would be, you know, out of date or out of style or didn't have the right version of USB or whatever. But uh, yeah, I haven't had to build one in, geez, maybe five years. Wow. Huh. Yep. It, and I'll just uh, throw in there, it's not only music to code by, it's apparently music to spreadsheet by. I was uh, playing it this morning. My wife was working in the in the home office with me on some spreadsheets for work, and she was digging it. So I found uh, a college student who says uh, he's never been better in class because he's studying to it. And, and it struggled for a long time to find music to listen to when you study because stuff that's familiar and that you like as music takes your attention away. And that's the whole, the whole point is to not, not steal your attention, not distract you. Very, very cool. So, uh, what, so you guys are sort of taking over the prism project. So you're already making changes to the code base and extending it to Xamarin apps. So so tell us more about what you have planned for Xamarin and extensibility. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, we have taken control of the, uh, the Prism library project from Microsoft, and we have open-sourced it. It is uh, actually on GitHub at github.com slash prism library. Uh, you can start forking and giving us pull requests all you want. Uh, but right now, the roadmap is really... Uh, you know, we are, like Brian always said, kind of holding our breath for build for the uh, Windows side of things, Windows Store and Windows Phone. But right now, I'm doing a lot of investigation on Xamarin Forms. So there's already a repo out there with some uh, Xamarin Form support. You know, we're working with event aggregations ported over. We have uh, commanding, delegate commands, very rudimentary logging. Uh, we have a pretty cool navigation service we've been playing with. And right now, so for those who are listening and maybe not be familiar with Xamarin Forms, what Xamarin Forms is, is uh, 
It is the ability to not only share your, your C-sharp code like you could with Xamarin, uh, but Xamarin Forms also allows you to share your UI. So basically, you write your UI one time, which is XAML-based, or you could do it in C-sharp. Uh, so you write your, your XAML UI once, yeah, and then it's shared across iOS, Android, Windows Phone, right? So since it's a XAML-based technology, we're trying to take advantage of that and see where we can start uh, putting some some guidance in place well, with Prism. So that's that's kind of where it's going. We're you know we're pulling a lot of things out into PCLs. Uh, we're trying to identify where things make sense, where they don't make sense. Like for example, uh, there's certain aspects of modularity that probably don't make sense on a mobile device. Uh, regions probably don't make sense on a mobile device. It has its own navigation yeah. paradigm you have to follow. Uh, so right now we're we're in a research stage. Uh, so you know we're really encouraging our community uh, to really you know f- communicate with us and, and let us know w- what problems they have and you know what we need to address and if we're going down the right direction. Because uh, as you know, Xamarin Forms is a brand new technology. Yeah. Uh, There's recently released, so it's it's in flux itself. There's breaking changes coming out of of Xamarin uh, every now and then that we have to mitigate. So. You know, we're definitely trying to go down this cross-platform um, approach to where we can share as much guidance as possible. So when you use Prism, you already have that structure, those blueprints for building apps, no matter what platform you're building for. Yeah, and another thing, you know, this this means to existing Prism users is there's much more opportunity now. I, I know I've worked with uh, customers in the past helping them adopt Prism and, and sometimes, you know, they had unique requirements that weren't part of the, the original requirements of, uh, of the Prism platform. And even though the source has always been, uh, the, the source code has always been that kind of open source that you can take it and do what you want with it. Um, there were some restrictions placed on there by Microsoft that it had to stay on a Windows platform, but, um, you know, you could always take the code and, and modify it and maintain your own personal branch of it, if you will. But but now this is, you know, a, a community open source project. And, and we really encourage people and hope that people will, you know, send us pull requests and, and have discussions with us on, on the wiki part of the of GitHub there and, and give ideas and, and help guide the project to where everyone needs it. And for those, there's always going to be those exotic requirements. I've, I've worked with a few uh, for customers myself that, you know, those aren't going to, we're not going to be able to please everybody like any open source thing, but it's all out there and you can always make your own fork and, and do with it what you will. What does it mean to the existing users of Prism? Nothing, I hope. No, so there's you know there's a couple answers to that. One is they can certainly stay on the existing version, um, and and have you know a rock solid stable version that's that's obviously not going to change out underneath them. If they do want to move to the new code branch that we're developing here, that that we're you know tentatively calling Prism Six, um, there is some restructuring that we're doing up front that would be you know if they just updated NuGets to to what we're, we're having now, they're, they're going to have some breakage. So we're still figuring out how we're going to structure that in terms of the NuGets um, and, and the auto up, update path. But there is some, you know, breaking change in terms of just moving things around. Functionality-wise, there's no, no breakage. All the functionality is going to be there. And, and there's also going to be, you know, some of the things that Brian and I have discussed. He's done most of the, the heavy lifting so far on the code. But, uh, you know, we've already made some improvements to just, a number of small minor things that have kind of bugged us for a while in the code base. And now we have the, the ability to address those in a, in a much more rapid fashion. Well, I noticed uh, in the, uh, the uh, subtext of prism on GitHub, you said prism six in the works, breaking changes are guaranteed. Yeah. And that's because, you know, we've already made some namespace changes, you know, like Brian always was saying, we pulled things out of WPF specific libraries are now in PCLs. Uh, basically, you know, we're, we're, the breaking changes for WPF will be minimal. They will really be mainly namespace breaking changes. Right. You search know, or replace re- changes. Search replace changes. Exactly. So, you know, find a replace is going to fix the majority of those. Uh, you know, we didn't go naming, renaming a ton of objects or anything like that. You know, there's one that we're discussing right now. Uh, nothing set in stone though. Uh, 
But I just want to, you know, when we put that note, we just want to set the expectation. Like, look, when you upgrade, you're going to have to do some work to to recompile. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not breaking them for it because they're fun. You're breaking them because the scope has changed. Exactly. Times have changed. Technology has changed. And if we don't change with them, uh, we won't be around anymore. Interesting. Yeah, and, and having worked, you know, as a contractor to to Microsoft on several of the releases of Prism, they were always very constrained on, you know, they had specific budget and specific goals that were were put on the product based on the organization and and what their customers were telling them. And obviously, we're you know we're doing this, uh, we're not being paid for this generally, and uh, doing it in our spare time. So you know the the rate of development for significant new features. Uh, it's hard to say how fast that's going to go. That's more based on the community now and, mm-hmm. and who wants to jump in and help. And we should also mention, uh, you know, one of our cohorts there that's, that's, uh, jumped, you know, put his hand up and is, is going to be a, uh, a, you know, a significant contributor and leader on the, the project is Ariel Ben Horish over in Israel. Um, and so, you know, exactly what his involvement's going to be and, and even our own involvement over time will vary, uh, based on our requirements, but, uh, he's he's definitely part of the core team as well. Awesome, that's great. So uh, you mentioned build. What's going on at build that has to do with Prism? Yeah, so I mean, we don't really know. You know, they haven't said anything specific other than the general idea that they're going to unveil what the developer experience is for Windows 10. Right. And everyone pretty much expects that it will be an evolution of what we know now in terms of WinRT development for Windows Store apps and Windows Phone 8.1 apps. Um, hopefully, you know, uh, a little bit jaded opinion here, but like I mentioned earlier, WinRT has been pretty painful to develop for yep. so far because for those of us who, you know, had a deep background in WPF, it's a constant process of, oh, I'll just do this. Oh, no, the platform doesn't support that yet. Well, then I'll just do this. Yeah. No, it doesn't do that either. Uh, and so, you know, the one of those running jokes is that the it sometimes feels like the whole framework is a system not implemented exception. Um, <laughs> a wrapper over so, a system not implemented exception. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so we're hoping that, you know, part of it is, you know, an evolution beyond that. Definitely it got a lot better with the, the Windows 8.1 release. Uh, they added a lot of new functionality there, but it's still, you know, in certain areas sorely lacking compared to WPF. So my personal hope is that that gets rounded out some more. Uh, as we move into Windows 10, um, I'm also hoping that there is some kind of, you know, migration path between WPF and Windows 10. Uh, I don't know if that'll come out of build or sometime later or whether it'll ever exist, but that's kind of what I, I was referring to in terms of holding our breath is it really depends on what they tell us in terms of the, the you know, the way things are going to change from what we know about WPF today and what we know about Windows Store apps today to what it's going to be for Windows 10 and see if it makes sense, you know, does that mean a, a single approach for for WPF and, and Windows 10, or does it mean this continued path of two separate pr- prism branches, basically, for the different platforms? I'll tell you what I want, and I, don't, I know just as little as you do, right? But I, I can tell you what I want, and you probably want the same thing, is I want a unified XAML platform. So this is something Richard was talking about before, you know, we're... Uh, you know, one XAML type or whatever, one XAML platform that where you can go anywhere. You can go to phones and all phones, and you can go to uh, Windows, and you can go to Windows Store, Windows Desktop, and hell, I even want it on the web. You know, I won't even want to do web-based XAML development. So I'm One XAML to rule them all. One XAML to rule them all. That's what I want. You know, I don't know if it's possible, that's what I want. And I'd also like to be able to publish them on an Xbox. Yeah, as long as we don't go down the, you know, the path of write once, run everywhere myth, you know, because there's always the difference in user experience that yeah. you want between a phone, a tablet, yeah, and a desktop. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But there's so much stuff that can be shared between all of those absolutely. things that can be done absolutely. with styling for each platform, right? Exactly. Well, and say what you want about Win 8. There's lots to say there. 
but they were that clearly is where XAML became part of the operating system, and we were headed down this unified path. Mm. Because before that, I mean, how many flavors of XAML was there? There was WPF, there was Silverlight, there was whatever the heck they did in the phone, right. which was something else again. You know, it, yeah, in fact, I'm I'm flashing back here. I think the the first place I heard that joke about the system not implemented exception was Rory, Rory back Blythe. in the Silverlight uh, three days. That's yeah. right. <laughs> he said Silverlight One is a giant wrapper around system not implemented exception. That's right. <laughs> the man could come yeah. up with a good a good joke. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no question. But it does feel like. Well, the other the other part is Win 10 seems to be a step back. I've got it on a couple of machines. It's a step back away from the metro precipice. Like it begins, it me, I begin to wonder if there's ever going to be a separation between those apps or if we even want one. Yeah, and I, one of the big things I'm, you know, hoping they, they do a good job of telling us at, at Build is, you know, one of the constraining aspects in terms of what we did in Prism for Windows Runtime was just the design guidance around what constitutes a proper Windows Store app, because it was very, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right term, but very directive in terms of saying, this is how you do navigation. This is how you do layout. Right. And this is what a, you know, a page looks like. And, And it basically took us away from complex screens to these very simple screens right. that you would do lots of navigation between. And so that, you know, guided a lot of our thinking in terms of not doing modularity and not doing regions and composition in the way that we did for Prism, Prism WPF apps. And so if that story changes again on us back to, like you said, if you start thinking of things more in terms of a enterprise worker at a desktop machine in a windowed application, then they still sometimes want to have pop-ups and they want to have, you know, deeply nested tab controls with tabs inside tabs and tab- side tabs because right. they just want that crazy denseness of data. Speaking and, of VB6... Uh, yeah exactly and i'm thinking exactly back to the same thing to steve barnett there just you know what did we do in winforms we made these really dense apps and they i mean i know i know if billy were listening he would be cringing right now and i'm not advocating that that's the way to do it no but i'm saying that there is you know there's a density of information for you know a, a a knowledge worker information worker type person that the original Windows 8 design simply did not address. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I'm hoping there's some guidance around that with respect to Windows 10 and this this recognition that they can't abandon that audience. Well, this has been my complaint about WPF since, the early, since it first showed up in 2005, that Microsoft did not give us design guidance. Yeah. And and if I felt like Prism was sort of design guidance in the guise of a framework for a while, but correct me if I'm wrong there, at least it's something. Well, it's architectural guidance. Right. It's certainly not in any way, shape, or form meant to be uh, user experience design guidance. But we do. I mean, I think we want that, don't we? Want that? I I I'm, well, a, I'm I, a developer. I don't know. I mean, I, if you look at the design guidance they did for for Windows eight eight point one, it resulted in like five hundred thousand apps that all have squares everywhere. You know, so right. I, I guess I guess it's a <laughs> a delicate balance. Okay, so design guidance, but not design guidance that sucks. <laughs> right there, you go. Not not design guidance that's overly restrictive okay. because it. It's exactly what Brian Laguna said is the the way the guidance read, it led you to believe that the only acceptable UI paradigm is tiles everywhere. And that just, you know, didn't work for certain kinds of apps. Right. Yeah. Or the yeah, the metaphors just don't make sense. And I think that's part of the challenge here is actually figuring out the right ways to build apps. And I and I do want to hope that you're you're sort of giving helping us fall into the pit of success in that space. But let me ask you this question because I think it, it might be relevant to this whole thing. Knowing, I mean, here it is March, and build is only a month or so away, six eight weeks away. If I'm working on an app right now, should I be using Prism? Are you going to help protect me from the changes that will come out of build? Well, that, well, that's a tough question. Uh, because currently, you know, as we mentioned, we, we have two separate guidance. So we have a right. guidance for WPF and we have a guidance for Windows Store apps. Are you talking about protecting you from the Windows Store side of things? I think I don't think anybody could save the Windows Store guys. <laughs> but I, I am thinking, knowing everything we've talked about here, if I'm looking at a WPF app that's under development, 
should I sit on my hands until after build? Or is there something that could help me continue forward knowing I'm going to get support for whatever changes come in the next couple of months? Right. Hmm. Well, when it comes to WPF, you're going to be safe anyways because they're not doing much with WPF except minor minor fixes. Right. Uh, but when it comes to Windows 10, hopefully, just as uh, Brian Noyce was saying, you know, the, the things that we hope for, if those come to fruition – then you will be able to have an easier migration path to the Windows 10 platform because you will be using the same APIs you're used to on WPF. Sure. Uh, so that's the that's what our goal would be. Now, if Microsoft delivers and we have to write separate guidance for Windows 10, well, then the the transition might not be as easy. But I and I got to think you guys are watching with bated breath essentially because it's going to help set your plans for Prism going forward. Yeah, it doesn't just help. It it sets our plans going forward. You know, <laughs> we are dependent on the direction Microsoft takes. And for sure. Our our code base is kind of in a a weird state right now where uh you know, we we've, we've kind of restructured where we can, where we know uh that we can. Uh and now we're just it's a waiting game on Microsoft for them to publicly start announcing stuff that we can start uh looking at and and you know, up, uh approaching well, guys, are we gonna we're gonna see you at Build? Obviously, are you doing anything official there? Do you have a booth? Are you gonna be just walking around, passing out uh, lit, or or what? Well, I'll be there uh, as an attendee, but uh, as we mentioned in, in my intro, I'm also the product manager for Infragistics, mm-hmm. and uh, we're gonna have a booth there. So I'll be around the Infragistics booth if if anyone has any questions about Prism or has any feedback or, or anything uh, related. Now, is Infragistics involved with Prism at all, or is this just a separate thing for you? No, no. Infragistics is not involved with Prism at all. It's just uh, it's an open-source, community-driven, led by me, Brian Noyce, and right now, Ben uh, Arish. Right. Well, that's great. Can't wait. I can't wait for Build in general. Man, there's so much excitement around it. Let's hope they don't disappoint. Yeah, let's <laughs> hope. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you there, and we'll talk to you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-